For years, scientists were baffled by the mystery of the floating fire ants. When placed in water, an individual fire ant will flounder, struggle, and eventually sink. But when there are a whole bunch of fire ants, the fire ants band together. They form life rafts where they survive the flash floods of the Brazilian rainforest. As a united raft, they can travel for months before reaching dry land. An article in the Los Angeles Times summarized a new research study that has unlocked some of the secrets of this mystery. After collecting a bunch of ants, scientists drop them into containers of water. And the ants quickly spread out and form themselves into rafts. Each individual ant used its claws and the adhesive pads on their legs to grip to each other. One researcher said at first it just looked like a tangle of bodies and limbs everywhere. But the longer you looked at the picture, the more you were able to distinguish between different body parts and see the connection. Through their connection, the insects create air pockets that form around their bodies to keep them afloat. The article concluded, the research sheds light on how deeply social insects act together, almost as if they're part of a superorganism. As one scientist said, the individuals acting together create this awareness of the environment that no one individual ant has. You see, together is better. Individually, the ants sink down. But when the ants gather together, almost as if they're part of a superorganism, they float. They're able to do together what they could not do alone. Because together is better. That's one of the main lessons we get from Nehemiah chapter 3. Individually, The Jews were weak, vulnerable, and not able to repair the city. But together, willingly bound with a common goal and common purpose, they were strong, they were unbeatable, and they were very much able to repair the city. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. Well, we're going to do something a little different for the scripture reading this morning. If you've looked ahead at Nehemiah chapter 3, you will find out that there are any number of names that are a challenge for Pastor Brian Etheridge to properly pronounce for your listening pleasure. So, we're doing something different. I think it's important that we get the full sense of this chapter. I think it's important that this chapter is read and these names are read. So instead of me struggling to pronounce names and all of you feeling kind of queasy or laughing at me, one or the other, and it become a distraction, we're going to listen to the chapter read for us in an audio version of the ESV Bible. So turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 and follow along. Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Ahasenaah built the fish gate. They laid its beams, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, 
son of Meshesabel, repaired. And next to them Zadat, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jehoiada, the son of Peseah, and Meshullam, the son of Pesadeiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him Hatash, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him Shalom, the son of Elohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him the Levites repaired, Reham the son of Bani, next to him Ashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him their brothers repaired, Babai the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kilah, Next to him, Azair, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedaiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him the Tekoites repaired, another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them Zadok, the son of Amer, repaired opposite his own house. After him Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east's gate, repaired. After him Hananiah the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan the sixth son of Zalaf, 
repaired another section. After him, Meshullam, the son of Berakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Amen. Now you understand why I didn't read it. But hopefully you understand as well some of the scope, some of the broad, amazing things that are happening in this project. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We come here today as humble servants to your word. We come here today asking you to take this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 3, all these names, all these different things, bring it alive to us. Teach us from your word eternal truths that change the actual way we actually live our lives. May it be so today. In Jesus' name, amen. See, part of the sweeping vista of this chapter is just to take in the magnitude of the size of the project of the rebuilding of the walls. In chapter 3, we have here at least 35 different families. Uh, we have five teams that did two sections of the wall. There are over 40 sections of the walls that need to be reconstructed. And all the wall was over two miles long, encompassed over 200 acres. There are hundreds of workers from all over the countryside, people of varying professions and abilities, goldsmiths, perfume makers, priests, temple servants, Women, common town folk, nobles, rulers, Levites, farmers, merchants, all organized, all focused on the task at hand. So it's really a remarkable chapter of incredible unity in the midst of great diversity. It's a great chapter of purpose and brotherhood, of hope and sacrifice, of working together and encouraging one another. Well, today I'm going to look at three aspects of rebuilding the wall. The first is the purpose of the wall. Why rebuild the wall? There is, of course, a pretty obvious answer, right? It needed to be fixed. The townspeople of Jerusalem were vulnerable to whatever impulsive raiding party wanted to come by. The city was indefensible and unprotected, left in tatters after the destruction in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. But now many people live there again. The second temple had already been rebuilt. And the book just prior to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, in chapters 1 through 6, it describes the rebuilding of the second temple. After some starts and stops in the construction, the second temple was completed in 516 B.C., 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. It's now 70 years later than that, in 446 B.C., that Nehemiah has come to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So the second temple has been there, but it's been vulnerable for all these years. Now, it's very hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to even grasp the importance of the city walls for protection. But an unwalled city was in constant danger. So yes, one of the important reasons for rebuilding the wall was to rebuild the walls for protection. Another reason for rebuilding the walls was that they gave the Jewish people not just a sense of national identity, 
but a real physical place for their national identity. The temple had already been there. The Old Testament sacrificial system was ongoing, but there was no strength. See, walls not only brought protection, but they also brought strength. They brought identity. They brought hope and pride. The walls provided a secure place to practice the worship God free and unfettered. In Nehemiah 2.19, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem veer at the people for even thinking about rebuilding the wall, they accuse them of rebelling against the king. See, for the most part, the conquering king did not want his conquered subjects to live in walled cities. Because walled cities could become strong. Walled cities could become prosperous. And then they could rise up and rebel against the very king that had allowed them to rebuild the walls. But as Nehemiah 2.18 says, the hand of God was upon Nehemiah for good, even turning the king's heart. Not only to allow them to rebuild the walls, but to actually fund the rebuilding of the walls. You see, the main purpose for the rebuilding of the walls was to remove the reproach, remove the shame, to remove the derision of the testimony of God and what the people were facing. We see that in Nehemiah 1.3 and 2.17. It's nearly impossible for us to understand the connection between the people of Israel with God and their connection with the land and with the temple and with Jerusalem. There were links in the ancient mind that equated the strength of your God with the strength of his people. If your God can't protect you, then you should probably worship the God of the army that just conquered you because obviously their God is stronger. There was such a much more concrete connection between a physical dwelling place of a God and their temple and their people and the power and the prestige of their God. Now, it's very important to note, very, very important to note, that the people of faith in the Old Testament had a faith much, much greater than that. We see that throughout the Bible. God is shown throughout the Old Testament as not some regional state-sponsored God, but as the one true God of the whole universe that sovereignly chose Israel to bear his name to the nations. So when Israel failed God, when When they failed him, it was God himself that brought about the very destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, using the foreign powers to bring the people of Israel to repentance and back to him. See, God was never conquered or weakened. He was the one who was doing the very action. It was his sovereign rule over the nations. He was the one who allowed himself, in the eyes of the surrounding nations, to look conquered, to look weakened, all in order to teach his people and to call them to repentance and faith. God willingly ties his reputation to the reputation of his followers. What an amazing truth that God willingly ties his reputation to the reputation of his followers. God's testimony faltered because God's people failed to follow him. God's people wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to rebuild God's testimony and to the surrounding nations of the truth, of the strength, of the wisdom, of the power of his plan. When the people of Israel were weak, the testimony of God was weak. Folks, nothing has changed. 
Nothing's changed. Today, just as always, God's testimony rises and falls on the reputation of his followers. We can all hear people saying, well, if if you're the people of God, why are there so many problems in the church? If your God is so powerful, why are Christians so weak? You see, when people look at you, when people look at this church, they are judging whether God is real. They are judging whether God is strong. They evaluate God by how we represent him. 2 Corinthians 5.20 teaches this truth. It says that we are ambassadors for Christ and that God is making his appeal to the world through us. Think about this with me. We are God's representatives on earth. We are here to share his message, to live his truth. How awesome is that? What a great privilege and what a great responsibility. Because God has directly tied his reputation with the working out of his will in his people, in you and in me. That's God's plan. So the question comes, how are we doing? Can people tell by the way you live that the first and foremost that you're a citizen of heaven? Can people tell by the way you live that you're an ambassador for Christ, that your priorities are his priorities, that your goals and, and, you, and his glory is your endeavor? Can your friends, your neighbor, your family tell by the way you talk that you're living a transformed life by faith through grace in Jesus Christ? These are critical, important questions in our day. Because our culture is becoming more and more a foreign land to the things of God. Just think of one thing. Just think of one thing. What would change in your life if you took your position as ambassador for Jesus Christ more seriously? What would change? One of the great purposes for rebuilding the wall was for the glory of God to be made known. And as I was thinking about chapter 3 this week, it really hit me on what an amazingly challenging project this was. The amount of coordination and organization, administration of people and supplies and tools is really amazing. There were at least 35 different families, teams, towns, organizations rebuilding the over 40 sections of the wall that's over two miles, included several security towers, and ten gates. Nehemiah lists for us in the scriptures here in Nehemiah chapter 3, the rebuilding of the wall in counterclockwise order. He starts with the sheep gate, which is in the north. And then he goes west. Down, you'll read, and he'll talk about the broad gate on the west. And then it goes down to the south, to the dung gate. And then it comes back up the east, finishing at the muster gate. With all of this work, we need to note that the vast majority of the people had little to no experience in masonry. The vast majority of people had never built a wall before. And you didn't just run to Home Depot, you know, and buy door hinges and buy locks and bolts and bars. Each one of those parts had to be handmade. And you didn't just run to the lumber yard and say, you know, I need this much delivered at this exact size with these kind of beams. 
never delivered to build each of those ten gates. He didn't just pick up bags of mortar from Lowe's for the tens of thousands upon thousands and thousands of bricks that had to be laid. And though most of all the old wall rubble was just right there to be used, it's certain that many of those old bricks were broken beyond use. And some of them just because they've been sitting there for 140 years. This is an amazingly difficult project. I've been involved in building projects with all these amazing, you know, plans and blueprints, page after page after page, multiple million dollar building projects. This is an amazingly difficult project. Nehemiah 6.15 tells us they finished it 52 days. 52 days. Some parts of Nehemiah's rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem have been excavated. You can actually go and touch and see part of the wall that we're reading about, that the people built in 446 B.C. Some parts that they've excavated, the wall is over six feet thick. It's not a brick fence. This is a wall, a massive wall. No computers, no blueprints. No calculators, no organizational spreadsheets, no going to store to buy what you need, no specialized, skilled labor force. So how did they do it? Here, I think, is a key word. Unity. Unity. Unity of purpose. Unity of goals. Unity of sacrifice. Everyone did their part. It wasn't about an individual's agenda. The mutual benefit of all was the focus. It wasn't about the professionals doing the work. The helping hands of all people were needed and cherished. No one was too proud to help, and no one was too unskilled to help. The goal was clear, and the goal was important, because together is better. The oneness and unity and togetherness, the mutual ministry and the harmony is what Jesus himself prayed for us. In what's called Christ's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed these words I'm going to read now, starting in verse 20 of John chapter 17. Jesus prayed these words for us. It says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his apostles, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We've believed in Jesus through their word. That they, that is us, that we may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Jesus is saying in this prayer that unity, a, a oneness that mirrors the very unity and harmony that exists between God the Father and Jesus, as we display that kind of genuine togetherness, we are testifying to the world around us about the reality of Jesus Christ and about how God loves us. It's hard to overstate the amazing attraction that the church has when it is truly unified. P 
people will long to come to be a part of the spiritual oneness of a church that is unified because it mirrors the very oneness of our God. It's also hard to overstate the devastating aversion that a church will have when it's divided and people will stay away when it's all about personal agendas, when sides are taken, when harmony and oneness is destroyed. See, without the people becoming unified, they would never have been able to restore their hope, their reputation, their city. Well, the application for us is clear. One of the very highest goals of our church must be oneness and unity and mutual ministry. Love must be our banner. We have to fight our pride. We have to fight our agendas. We have to fight trying to get what we want. We have to fight thinking that we know best. And instead, we have to together pursue humility, pursue putting the needs of others before ourselves, pursue what is the most mutually beneficial based on God's priorities. For Poland Village Baptist Church to move forward on mission for Jesus Christ, we have to be together, unified, under a banner of love. Love for Christ, love for each other, and love for the world in need around us. How awesome it is to say, to testify before you today, that in so many ways this is true of our church. It's great, it's awesome, but we must pursue it. You know, like a thirsty man running after a glass of water. Like a dog running after a stick. Or like my favorite illustration of this, like a rat after a Cheeto. We've got to pursue unity. We walked, we talked in our Vision 2020 meeting that the only way forward is together. The Lord's building a great church here and so many of us are serving hard to advance the cause of Christ with the awesome challenges ahead of us of possible building addition, of adding a vision-focused staff, we have to pursue unity. Because the only way forward is together. Together is better. When as I look at chapter 3, I just want to highlight some of the people involved uh, and what we can learn from that. We see first in the list, uh, the first one is Eliasib, the high, high priest. Nehemiah specifically starts off his list of wall builders showing that the high priest, the highest spiritual leader among the Jews and his fellow priests, did their part. It's important that spiritual leaders lead. It's important that spiritual leaders lead in service and sacrifice and in unity. Unity can never be achieved if the spiritual leaders of the church don't model it, don't pursue it and live it. Every spiritual leader in the church from the pastor to the Sunday school teacher, from the deacon to the word of life leader, men's ministries, women's ministries, nursery, youth, music ministry, every spiritual leader in our church has the responsibility to lead. To lead in service. To lead in sacrifice. To lead in unity. See, unity can never be achieved or maintained if we, if not all of us, all the spiritual leaders of the church, 
Don't model it or pursue it and live it. There's another thing here mentioned in verse 1 that I think was planned out in all of eternity past. The Holy Spirit made sure that Nehemiah included it here for us. See, the priest repaired the sheep gate. One of the gates closest to the temple were the animals, including all the sacrificial animals, would come through. See, Nehemiah could have started off his list at any gate. The priest could have rebuilt at any gate. But in the providence of God, it was the sheep gate. And the reference to the sheep gate clearly reminds us of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 7 says of Jesus, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. John the Baptist in that great scene on the banks of the Jordan in John 1.29 cries out for the whole crowd to hear, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. Many thousands upon thousands of sacrifices were led through that gate to picture for us the one and only sacrifice that could actually take away our sins. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made as the footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not only is the sheep gate a picture of Christ, but if you look closely, you'll note there's something not mentioned about this gate. It doesn't mention locks. It doesn't mention bolts and bars. You see, the way is never closed to a lost sinner who wants to come to Jesus. The gate is always open. Also, you notice there, it's the only part of the wall system that is mentioned that was consecrated. Consecrated just means set apart. The priest set apart the sheep gate for God's special use. Little did they realize at that moment that they were picturing the truth that Jesus was set apart as the Lamb of God as the one and only sacrifice for our sin. I hope today that each one of us in this room today can say with the full conviction of their heart and mind and soul that I have put my trust in Jesus Christ as the one and only sacrifice for my sins, my Savior. Nehemiah 3.1 is a foreshadowing of the picture of our Savior we also see in verses 2 and 5 and 7 that Jews from outside of Jerusalem, from uh, cities like Jericho and Tekoa and Gibeon and Mizpah, they all came in to help and rebuild the walls. See, it wasn't a Jerusalem city problem. It was a Jewish nationality issue. And many Jews from the surrounding areas were grateful to help rebuild the walls to the glory of God. Many of these out-of-townspeople, if you read closely, actually did more than one section of the wall. Some of the greatest fulfillment in life can only come 
when you help someone else. Somehow by putting them first, somehow by putting their needs first, you actually end up gaining in your life real godly satisfaction. Verse 5 mentions that the nobles of the leader of the city of Tekoa would not stoop to serve the Lord. So important in their own eyes, so concerned with their own agenda that they would not join in. And they missed out. They missed out on being part of a great work of God. There's always someone in our lives on a sideline, some critic saying that, you know, that with their own plan and often with their uh, bitter tongue, they discourage us by not being a part. But in reality, they're the ones missing out. We need to be spiritually wise and don't miss out and joining in on what God is doing in our midst. We also see in verse 8, 31, 32, that people of varying professions are mentioned, like goldsmiths and perfumers and merchants. I'm sure there were farmers and shepherds and bakers and many others who helped rebuild the wall outside of their normal skill area. That's one of the great things about serving our God. You see, a banker can be a servant in the nursery. An accountant can be in charge of the fellowship meal. A farmer can be teaching the Sunday school class. A plumber can be doing the books. Church is not about professional competency, but about serving Jesus by serving your church with a willing and humble heart. One person wrote this neat story. It says, At my daughter's elementary school musical, the printed program noted, This musical was originally written for 15 actors but it has been adapted to accommodate our cast of 206. You know what kind of show that was. It's the no-cut auditions. No performer left without something special to do. They danced, they sang, they delivered lines, and somehow 206 children graced the stage that night. And the author writes, it was not a short program. The church's calling is like the a volunteer genius that took an elementary school musical with 15 parts and creatively adapted it for 206. We take a task that we could professionalize and simply pay someone to do, and we divide it into parts so that everyone has a job. Is it efficient? No. Not if all you care about is getting the job done, but the church cares less about getting the job done and more about the people who are doing it. We're not in the efficiency business. Our business is to make disciples. We want to offer as many people as possible the chance to know Christ in service and in community. The church remains the home of the no-cut audition. We don't get to choose the members of our body. We have to want to get in. And once you are here, we will find a part for you in the body. You see, the truth that's modeled throughout Nehemiah chapter 3. We see this truth modeled throughout Poland Village Baptist Church. We want as many people as possible to have the chance to know Christ in service and in community. One uh, interesting thing to know that at least six different workers plus an unknown number of priests 
repaired portions of the wall that were nearest to their own homes. Of course, there's a great spiritual lesson here, right? Christian service begins at home. Chinese proverb says, better to be kind at home than to burn incense in the fireplace. Paul says, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. If all of us would follow this truth, that Christian service begins at home, our homes, our neighborhoods, our cities would be revolutionized, be in much better shape. It's great to serve God at church. It's awesome. I love it. It's a privilege of my life. But greater still, the privilege is to serve God in our homes. Verse 12 mentions Shalom, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem. He repaired the section of his wall with the help of his daughters. Did you catch that? Obviously, women were a vital part in the rebuilding of the walls. Without their support and hard work, the wall could never have been rebuilt. There had to be dozens upon dozens of women involved in rebuilding the wall, organized and focused on doing their part. You see, it took everyone, priests and rulers, tradesmen, out-of-towners, men and women, children, all with their varying gifts, all with differing skill levels to rebuild their walls. It was their service to God in unity with a common goal and shared passion and collective vision. As we endeavor to impact and make that impact in our communities, it will take all of us, everyone, men, women, children, all of us with our varying gifts and our differing skills and abilities. This is critically important. Every one of us has an opportunity to participate, even if you can't actually physically help. Because any success of any endeavor in Christ must be bathed in prayer, must be sustained in prayer. Who knows what real success we only have because of the prayer of the saints. See, church is a team sport where every part is doing their job. It makes the church an effective tool in the hands of God. You know, there's this famous quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Well, Jesus changed the world with 12 ordinary men. Maybe, just maybe, if we offer ourselves, if we offer our church to Jesus, maybe he'll use us, ordinary people, to change the world. May it be so. Because together is better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and challenges us. We thank you for our church for the long history of our church and the long future history of our church, focused on you and your word, on Jesus and his salvation, firmly on the foundation of truth, biblical, revealed truth. And Lord, we thank you that as we hold to that, as we teach that, that we endeavor to reach out, to be used of you, to 
to make an impact into our community, each one of us together in unity, with purpose and focus, with the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, may it be so that you would take this small band of people, this church on Hill Drive, and change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.